Let me give you a bit of a, of a catch-up on where we were. Looking back over Romans 9, I just want to have this fresh in our minds. So we've been contemplating with great clarity in Romans 9 how the absolute sovereignty of God comes together with the responsibility of sinful humanity. And these are mysterious things, yes, but they're also very clearly taught in Scripture. Both of them are true, both of them. And what we'll see is, while the emphasis in Romans 9 may lean more to reveal the absolute sovereignty of God, as we move into Romans 10, we're going to feel very much the other part of this equation coming into play. That is that sinners are responsible before the holy God who is. We are responsible for our hardness of heart and our rejection of the gospel. And so it, it can be said, yes, both God hardens hearts and we do as well. That is what we instinctively do. We rebel, we harden our hearts, we stiff arm the God of all glory and grace. And if left to ourselves, we will continue to do so all the way to the fires of hell. So that we understand hell is just. It is a just punishment for sinners who have chosen rebellion against a righteous and holy God. Heaven is not fair. To, to, to receive grace is, is not fair. It's, it's far past this, this fairness concept. It is grace, unmerited and free, lavished by God in sovereign freedom on those whom he chooses. And so you see the, the heart of this show up in Romans 9, 15 and 16. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it, that is salvation, God's sovereign election of those whom he will save, it depends not on human will or, or work, exertion, but it depends upon God who has mercy. What, a, what an amazing sum up of Romans 9, right in those verses, okay? So with that ringing in our ears, now here's the thing, in order to feel how these two amazing things come together and they are taught in the scriptures, you've got to have that ringing in your ears as you move through the final verses of 9 and into 10, okay? That's why I wanted us to have that in view. Now, I titled the sermon, Solid Rock or Stumbling Stone. Solid Rock or Stumbling Stone. And I think as we move through here, we'll understand what that means more. Um, so let's just dive into Romans chapter 9, verse 30 to 33 here. And these verses, I just was amazed at how you can see that we are saved <clears throat> by grace alone through faith alone. So when I say by, it means that, that is, it is of God completely. His sovereign free grace unmerited favor is ultimately the reason anyone is saved. How does he do it? How does he save? Well, he saves through faith in Christ. That's the mechanism, and we're really going to see that kind of work out in the coming weeks. Now, the faith itself is a gift of his grace. So, so he, he saves sinners by bringing to them the resources that they lack in order that they may be saved in the mechanism he has ordained. That is, by placing their faith in Jesus Christ alone and being justified, declared righteous by God, and saved. So, verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness... Wait, I'm, I'm reading this wrong. Let me be clear. <clears throat> I read this wrong all week long, and, and I'm so glad I caught myself. This is not a question after that first question mark. It's a statement. Let me read it correctly here. What shall we say then? This is his conclusion. Let me, let me make a statement, not a question. That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, righteousness have indeed attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law that law. Why? Well, they, they did not pursue it by faith, but as, it, uh, as if it were based on works. So, statement of fact, statement of truth, here you see. You have Gentiles who are living their lives completely unconcerned about 
the law or, or righteousness at all. And they all of a sudden are saved. And over here, you have an entire group of people who have given themselves to pursuing righteousness in the law. The problem is, is they've gone about it the wrong way. And they have not reached that righteousness because they pursued it as if it were by works. And so you see, once again, common ground we've covered, especially as we considered Romans uh, chapter 5, right? 5 and 6. The, the concept of justification by faith alone, apart from works of righteousness. Okay, let's dig in here a little bit. One of the things that stands out in the book of Romans, especially in this passage, is that righteousness is the requirement of God when it regards sinners like you and me. He is holy and righteous, and we have a, a righteousness uh, problem, you might say, <laughs> as sinners. We, um, we have a, an issue because we are sinners. We are rebels. We are unrighteous, and God is righteous. And so it's an interesting way to kind of frame just the, just the way you think about the gospel. You, you, could, you could present the gospel, in, in a sense, by saying God who is righteous requires sinners who are unrighteous to become righteous in order to be with him. Hmm. So you can understand then sin. What does it mean that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? Well, it means this. Sin is anything that fails to reflect his righteousness or treasure his righteousness above all else. It's a very simple way to understand sin. My rebellion deep within is a transgressing of the glory of God in his holiness, in all that is right about him. And as an image bearer, I am held to account in a way that a dog or a cat, certainly a cat, <laughs> oh, careful. <laughs> we uniquely are those who carry the image of God. No animal, no angel, no one carries the image of God but humanity. And so when we transgress the image that we are to reflect in perfection, we sin. We sin. We offend a righteous and holy God that we have been created to mirror. We oftentimes prefer our own reflection over the God of all glory. When you think about it, it's like pointing a mirror at dirt. That's who we are. We're dirt. He made us from the dust of the ground, friends. We lack righteousness. We need righteousness. And so comes the, uh, the, the, the big question. How will we attain it? Hmm. Will we pursue righteousness by faith or will we pursue righteousness by works? And I'll just tell you, on your way home today, I want you to consider the churches and the established religious gathering points that you drive past and ask the question, real simple question. Are they pursuing righteousness today by faith or by works? It is the most distinct watershed difference. It is what all world religions have in common. Seeking righteousness. The problem is most often it is not by faith in Christ. It is by works of my own. I must be a good person. I must prove that I am a good person by the things that I do. And if I can take this book and, and, and find reasons to feel good about myself when I do or don't do the things that I'm called or called not to do, then all of a sudden I can feel better about myself. And so even a book as beautiful as the law of God can be completely mishandled to the end of destruction. We need righteousness. We lack righteousness. We are called by the Word of God, even in the law of God. The first five books and all of the prophets, all of the Old Testament points us to this. This righteousness must be by faith. It was never just about 
exterior conformity to some set pattern. It was always about the heart, always. One of the things you see in Jesus is he drove it to the heart. Every time he was ministering or preaching, he he drew truth past the exterior facade to the heart. He said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And then he said this, in vain do they worship me. If you want vain worship, walk into an establishment that pursues righteousness by works. That is the bulk of religious activity that is happening right now around the world. If you want biblical righteousness, you must understand the only way that a sinner like you or me will ever be righteousness is if we find it somewhere other than ourselves. It's not in us. We need an alien righteousness, as theologians refer to it, outside of us. It must come from Christ and Christ alone. They have stumbled, Paul says, over the stumbling stone as it is written. Now he quotes from Isaiah. Don't miss this. He is pleading here for for the Jews, his people, those Jews that, that have rejected Jesus. He uses the Old Testament over and over again. He quotes from Isaiah. He's going to quote from uh, Joel here in a little bit. Uh, He's quoting from all over the place, drawing attention that the Old Testament points to Christ and his righteousness. Isaiah writes, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. And then he says this. Look at this. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. If you're an Old Testament Jew, or even in Paul's day, right? Or even today, you've got to answer the question, who is that? Who is that? His name is Jesus. Jesus the Christ. Promised of old. He will be for some a stone of stumbling. For others... He will be the very foundation upon which they build their lives. Cornerstone or stumbling stone? When you think cornerstone, think the stone so perfectly cut that it maps the the dimensions and and, and the direction of every other stone that is laid in that building. It is the first stone, the foundation stone, the stone across which everything else is plumbed and true. If that stone is right, the whole building is right. If that stone is off, even in the slightest bit, that building will not be sound. Jesus Christ, cornerstone. But for many in Paul's day and still today, among the Jews. Not all now, let's be clear. Paul was a Jew. And God graciously opened his eyes and softened his heart. So some in our day have experienced the glory of God's sovereign grace to break through hard hearts and save them. Yes, even among the Jews. But by and large, today, as back in Paul's time, the Jews have rejected their Messiah in Jesus He is the stone of stumbling. He has tripped him up. And that fall is great. Will you stand upon him as your solid rock? Or will you stumble to your eternal destruction over this stone? Why do we need Jesus if we have the law? You could almost hear this 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 question kind of ringing in, right? What's, what's the big deal, Paul? You're acting like we don't have righteousness. Dude, we're righteous, man. We got the law. We do stuff. And we feel good when we do it. We're keeping His commandments meticulously. In fact, we've even added hundreds of extra commandments. <laughs> hundreds. And we keep all of those as well. And we make sure everyone else does if they want to feel good about themselves. What are you telling us? We're not righteous? Who do you think you are? Oh, do you see how easy it is to fall prey to this? 
the law was never given to establish righteousness in us by works. It was never the goal of the law. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So these Gentiles who weren't pursuing righteousness, all of a sudden they find it for free in Christ. They are made righteous in Christ. How is it that they are saved? By faith. Not by keeping the law, but by trusting in Jesus. And the Jews who have given themselves to keeping this law, but in the wrong way, have rejected Jesus and said, we're fine, we're, we're good, we got the law. And they perish in their sins. We are saved by grace alone through faith. This is key. Our salvation meets us. The, the mechanism of God saving a sinner is faith. Faith is required for salvation. Trusting Christ as Savior, not yourself. I am not enough. I am not righteous. I can't save myself. There's no amount of good that I could do that would ever qualify me for salvation. But I know one who is. And I trust in Him alone. Solus Christus. He's my only hope. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. I just had to echo this because the words are so similar. You think of Jesus talking to Nicodemus, who was, by the way, remember this? A, a Pharisee, a, a leader, right, of, 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 of law keepers. He's interacting with Nicodemus in John 3. And he says this to, John, uh, to, to, to Nicodemus in John 3.16, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Listen to the, the echo of Isaiah in his words. This is purposeful. He is using the language that Nicodemus would have been familiar with and talking about himself. He's basically saying, you want to talk about the stumbling stone? It's me. Don't stumble, Nicodemus. Place your faith in me. That's, that's John 3.16. Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. There will be no shame, no disappointment. And don't miss this. Whoever. Whoever. That means Jew or Gentile. There's no limit to the grace of God. It is extended to the ends of the earth. Now it is whoever believes. And so automatically we're like, well, wait a second now. We're still in Romans 9. How can you say whoever? Whoever believes. And how would we answer that according to what we've already covered here? Those who believe are those who were chosen. That is the same group. The reason they believe is because they were chosen. Otherwise, they would never believe. They would harden their heart. Left to themselves, they would look upon Jesus and see nothing. That would have been true of all of us. We believe in Him because God first loved us. Hmm. Wow. Now, running hard in the wrong direction. We've made it to chapter 10. Good work, everybody. Chapter 10, running hard in the wrong direction. Look at verse 1 of chapter 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is that they, who's the they? That's the Jews, right? His countrymen, his brothers in, uh, in Jewish uh, heritage is that they may be saved. I've had so many people over the years say, listen, if you believe that God is absolutely sovereign in salvation, you can't see any meaningful purpose to prayer. There's just no reason for it. If God does it all anyway, then what's the point of prayer? And I would just have you ask Paul that in Romans 10, verse 1. He's, our, we, it's ringing in our ears that God is sovereign. He is the one, ultimately, who brings salvation to sinners. He is the, 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 the sovereign in it. And, and Paul is praying to God that he save his fellow countrymen. Hmm. The objection for me has never 
added up. Let's, let's frame it in this way. If God knows that the ultimate determination of, of heaven or hell lies in the individual, that we are self-determining creatures, sovereign ultimately, as it were, in our salvation, how is it more encouraging to pray to a God like that? You, you see, you see the, the question I have is, why do we think that God is able to hear prayers more effectively if he is an observer of our free will making decisions than if he indeed is sovereign in saving? It's, it's actually just the opposite, isn't it? Rather than undercut prayer, it establishes it. A God who is able to answer a prayer like that, Lord, please open their eyes. God is not saying, well, I'd, I'd love to, but they're free will. I can't really do anything. Right? You see, you see what I mean? I, I, and I'm dead serious. I, I don't want to belittle anyone's theology. I just want to just, let's, let's logically work it out. You can't really pray to a God who esteems the free will of man above everything else. He's unable. He's limited. But a sovereign God, oh man, you can pray. You can pray, Lord, open their eyes. Change their hearts. Show them the face of Christ. Turn them from their sin. Soften that hard hatred of you and establish your uh, your, your, your presence, your call in their life and turn them to Christ. God loves prayers like that. My heart's desire doesn't stop there. He's not just saying, I wish I could do something. He's saying, I'm praying. I am praying to the sovereign God for them, the unsaved, that they may be saved. So, rather than undercut prayer in the slightest, it establishes it on a foundation of confidence that we can pray. And here's how we can pray. Lord, they don't deserve your salvation. Neither did I. They are not seeking it. Neither was I. But I pray that if you be so pleased to lavish your grace upon them like you did me, please do so. Please do so. You are free. You're not compelled to save. But oh God, I love them dearly. And I pray for them. And I pray that in your mercy and your kindness, you would find a place to shelter them in your grace. That's a prayer to a sovereign God who delights in saving sinners. The sovereignty of God in salvation and the role of prayer in evangelism, think of it this way, hearts stirred to pray for life in Christ and hearts made alive in Christ. One of the reasons you have a desire for the lost to be saved is because God has stirred your heart that way. And when you pray, you pray ordained prayers. Your prayers are as ordained as the effect that may come from those prayers when God visits with salvation. It's not just the end. It's the means. It's not just the destination. It's the path. And every conversation and every prayer and every groaning too deep for words. Oh, Lord, we just had this last night. Jenny and I, her siblings, they're not saved. They, they, they can't stand what we stand for. They don't like what we do here. And our hearts are groaning. Lord, save. And so we're on the couch. We're just praying. Do what you can do, God, what they can't. You can do this. Clearly they can't. Their hearts are so hard. We love them though. Please save. Please save. Either way, you're good. Either way, we trust. They don't deserve the salvation. They deserve wrath. Yes, that's true. But we pray that you would show them grace. We can pray that and believe Romans 9. Paul goes on, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. The Jews, they have all the zeal and passion, but it's not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. 
This is a fascinating thing. It proves to us that zeal and passion are not enough. God doesn't look upon someone and say, you know what, they have no idea what they're talking about, but boy, they're into it. I I should totally save them. They're really zealous for Baal. They're really zealous for Muhammad. Look at how committed they are to the Punjab way. Their zeal must count for something. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. You can be zealously blind. Think of a racetrack. Everybody lines up, all of Whatcom County on the starting line, and the call is just run. Let's just run. Everybody run the race. And so we start running, and here we go. We're, we're running across the hills, and we're just cruising along and, you know, feeling pretty good running along. And then here we go. We're running. And, but look, look at this. Seeking to establish their own. Their own what? Their own righteousness. They did not submit to God's righteousness. So all of a sudden, this, this, this guy, he, he jumps off the track. And, and, and onto a different track. It's not the course that you're supposed to run on. He, he goes to this other course, and then we're like, well, what's he doing? Well, jumping in the sand, man. <laughs> and, then, and then someone next to you is like, well, that's probably what we're supposed to be doing with this whole track thing. We should just jump in the sand too. And so all of a sudden, all of us, rather than run the, the, the marked out course, in the law, in the word, it's still good, it's, but, but we're, not, we're not receiving it the way we ought. And so we start backing up, and every day we're, we are committed to jumping as far as we can into the sand. And so we, well, I mean, we, 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 we measure, how far did you jump? Well, the 12 feet. I got 14. <laughs> Keep it up. Someday you'll be, you know, as righteous as me. You see, the, you see the, the, the point? We are jumping in the sand, not running on the track. The Jews had taken the law and completely rejected its whole purpose. The point was never jump in the sand and then measure to see who's most impressive, who can jump the farthest, and then judge those that can barely jump at all. It's completely backwards. That's not the point of the law. And God says, that's not righteous, not impressive. You were made for the track. What are you doing in the sand? The ever-deepening pit of self-righteousness. There is a poison, and it may be present here. It, It could be in this room right now. It is toxic. It is poisonous. That poison is called self-righteousness. The problem with this is that it can be very sanctimonious, very religious looking. It can be very impressive actually. And you can have a Bible under your, it might even be an ESV study Bible, right? You might walk into church And you carry that Bible. But in your heart, there is this this focus on you. Right? It's it's like, here I am. Check. Sunday morning. Again. I don't miss church. Can't say that about these people. They really should have heard this sermon. Oh man, I'm telling you, friends. Once you start down this road, even though you may be talking about Jesus and talking about things like grace and mercy and singing songs about the gospel, it is dangerously possible to be digging a pit for yourself in self-righteousness. This is what the Pharisees did really well. That's why Jesus kept saying, what are you doing in that hole, Pharisees? Look at what you're doing. The problem with with, with self-righteousness is it doesn't stop digging. Even when it realizes it's in the pit, it just keeps digging deeper. And and you do some some 
moving of dirt and you throw it out and you're like, well, that was awesome. Man, I feel good about me. I feel holy and righteous. And then the very next thing that comes is, I feel like I'm better than that person. I'm doing a little better than than she is. Pride and judgmentalism define self-righteousness. If my righteousness feels better about itself by belittling others' lack of it, I am in the pit. And the most dangerous thing about this is often you don't even see it. You keep, people tell you, that's self-righteous. What you just said, that's self-righteousness. Do you not hear it? I don't know what you're talking about. I'm just digging. <laughs> and I feel good about it. Oh, friends, be warned. Be warned. The gospel is a gospel of grace that should humble us, never exalt us to look down upon other sinners and say, oh, God, I thank you that I'm not like this loser. Right? Thank you for all the things I do for you. I give tithes. I pray. I, I never miss church. I've been a charter member of this church since it was founded. I taught Sunday school. I got the been there, done that shirt from the Mexico mission trip. Look at all the things I do for you. I thank you that I am so amazing and not like this guy. That will lead you to the fires of hell so fast. There are many religious people, very religious people, who are in the flames of hell right now. And they were so impressed with themselves that they thought for sure those gates would swing wide open. And they heard the words, depart from me, I never knew you, workers of lawlessness. You dug your own grave. Be warned, my friends, be warned. All of us, we all have to guard against this. Paul goes on to say this, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Here it is. This is the answer, friends. How does a sinner like me ever become righteous that right there Christ he's the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes how do I find the righteousness by faith it's by faith what is the word end here does that mean termination he terminates the law no it means fulfills it Jesus Christ fulfilled the law perfectly it's one of the reasons we sing that we trust his his obedience his blood and righteousness, those two things we bank on. He obeyed everything he did was righteous and holy. None of us can say that. He obeyed and then he laid his life down to die on the cross, to pay for our disobedience. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The righteous, righteousness of Jesus Christ is the only hope for sinners. And I just say that again. God is not going to be looking to establish your justification based upon your church attendance. That's not what He's interested in. He is not looking for how many old ladies you helped across the street or, or how often you paid it forward. He is looking for one thing and one thing alone. Is Jesus your only hope? Are you defined by the righteousness of Christ? Anything short of that is not enough. Roman Catholic teaching is heretical on this point. They are heretical on many, many points. But here's one. They say that your righteousness plus Jesus' righteousness is what meets the, meets the standard, right? So the call is, listen, you do your best. You, you try to be a good person. You try to do all the things you're supposed to do and, and try not to do the bad things, right? But here's the deal. At the end of the day, God's going to take your righteous deeds and then he's going to make up the difference with Jesus' righteousness. So it's, 
It's Jesus plus me equals salvation. That's not what Paul's saying. Not at all what Paul's saying. That's a denial of the gospel, and it's damnable. Are we clear on this? If I look to myself in the slightest, I prove that I am not trusting Jesus alone as Savior, and my soul may be in danger. We must confront this, the slippery, just it can slide in without even realizing it. We begin to think, I deserve saving. Not true. The Bible teaches it is Jesus' righteousness alone. I contribute absolutely nothing to my salvation. I, I make no contribution to my salvation. Not a, not a single ounce of righteousness from me. It's all of God. It's why we say it's to His glory alone. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. There it is again. Do you feel the joy of this? Paul is coming from Romans 9 and he's showing us this is not just you know, well, we concern ourselves with the frozen chosen. Who out there is elect? Right? Raise your hand if, you, if you're elect. And I'm going to concern myself with you alone. That's not the call of the gospel, is it, friends? Not at all. Paul says, listen, you find everyone you can. Anyone who will listen to you, preach the gospel to them. It is good news to all who believe. Some will harden their heart and turn and walk away to their own destruction. Some, by grace, unmerited favor, because God has sovereignly established their election unconditionally in eternity past. Some, when they hear this gospel, He will make them alive. And they will hear with ears. And they will see this Christ of love who laid his life down for them, and they will run with faith to embrace him, the faith that God gives. This is good news for evangelism too, isn't it? Good news. It's not on us to try to stir up some emotional response or manipulate things or just have the right amount of fog and lasers in the room and, and like 48 repeats on that last song until they finally say, please just let me go. I'll run the aisle, whatever. I got to this is, it's not that, is it? It is confidence in the Spirit of God who can save the hardest heart. The Gospel is not complex. It's amazingly simple. Our call is to share it with everyone and trust the Lord to land it in the supernatural way that only He can. Now, the simplicity of faith, these final verses of chapter 10 today, we're going to cover this, the simplicity of faith. This is, <laughs> this is what makes it so difficult. That's the funny thing. It's so simple. It makes it so hard for people to conceive. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. And I would just add, who... Uh, who who is that? Who, who does that? Anyone? Has there ever been a person on this earth that has obeyed the law and never sinned? Perfect obedience. The only answer is one. His name is Jesus. And He is the only hope of righteousness. The law was never given to save us. The law serves two purposes. We covered this earlier in Romans. It reveals the righteousness of God and it reveals our lack of it, right? We are not righteous. That's the whole point. That's one of the reasons I wanted to do Leviticus before Romans. Every day we're back doing the same thing. Why? Because we sinned again. More blood, more animals dying, more burning carcasses on the fire. That should be me 
every day. It says again and again. It crushes us with the weight of the reality that we are not righteous. And at the same time, it shows us there is going to be provision made for you. That lamb, his name is Jesus. He is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He's coming. Place your faith in him as you sacrifice. Hmm. The righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? It says, he's quoting from Deuteronomy here, by the way. Again, Old Testament, just bringing it to bear. The word, my friends, is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. What does this mean? It means two things. Number one, the gospel declares the work is done. As sinners who need righteousness, we don't have to go and try to find Jesus up in heaven and bring him down and say, please work, please do things. Or in the abyss, deep in the sea, uh, in the grave to try to raise him up. No, it's already done. He already did that. The Christmas story and the Easter story ring out for us. It's done. The work is finished. And then he says, it's near. It's not overly complex. It's not like you have to become some, some mind-blowing philosopher or impressive intellect. It's right here. And the call is, trust Jesus. Trust Him alone. It's in your mouth. It's on your heart. He goes on to say this, because if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. What is he saying here? Now, we've got to be careful. Otherwise, we'll turn this into the very same problem the Jews did with the law. If all of a sudden we take this and we're like, oh, well, that's what you got to do. So we're going to go to people and say, listen, hey, um, I need you to say something. Repeat after me. Just say, Jesus is Lord. Now believe it. And, and now say, I believe Jesus was raised from the dead. Say that. Okay, you're saved. Is that what Paul is saying? Is this just some formula we just, we lay on people, these two things, just boom, say it, believe it, done. No, he's, he's not oversimplifying the gospel. What he's saying is, Faith. It's faith that saves. It is not works. Listen, the, the heart of it is I trust Jesus. I believe the gospel, the good news. Jesus did all the work. The mechanism of faith has a focal point, and his name is Jesus. My righteousness comes from him alone. I bow to him not only as Savior, but as Lord. So believe and bow. Believe and bow. If you don't bow, you don't believe. Let's be clear. All of this hubbub about how you can have Jesus as Savior but not really surrender to Him as Lord, where is that in this Bible? It's, just, it's, it's silly. If you treasure Him and you see Him for who He is, you're not only going to believe in Him, you're going to bow at His feet and say, King Jesus, lead the way. I owe you everything, all my days. You, you are my sovereign, not me. I turn from all of my wickedness and I trust you alone. So believe and bow. Believe and bow. What is the appeal of works righteousness? Well, it's tangible. Why have so many fallen prey to this? Well, <laughs> faith in Christ is hard to to wrap your hands around, right? But if you crawl up the steps on your knees and beat your back with a chain as you crawl to atone for your own sins, then when you get to the top of the steps, you can say, I did it. It's finished. I did something, and I deserve something. You see, the, the, the nature of this works are so tangible, and so we, we have this inclination toward just, just grab onto that. 
faith and trust in Jesus, that's, that's harder. It's harder. It is why Paul described the gospel as foolishness to some. It's the foolishness of the gospel. Listen to his words in 1 Corinthians 1. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, that's the way he ordained it be, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach. It's foolishness. We are preaching foolishness, my friends. Believers, when you share the gospel, it's foolishness to the world. And it's the only way to be saved. It's how God has ordained that salvation meet the chosen. For the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek, seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a Savior who was killed and died on the cross and rose from the grave. He is indeed a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. You mean you, you, you treasure a king who was crucified? They would say, fools. What a bunch of weaklings. We want a king who's triumphant. And they miss the whole point. You talk about triumph. The world has never known triumph like this king who gave his life and then conquered death. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, what do we hear? What do we see when the gospel is proclaimed? Christ. The power of God and the wisdom of God. We see glory when the world sees foolishness. Called. That is called to life. Hmm. We are saved by grace alone, my friends, through faith alone in Christ alone. That is the call of these verses once again. Grace, it is sovereign, it is free, it is unmerited, it is unconditional election. Faith, it is a requirement. It is something we do not have in and of ourselves. It is a gift of God's grace at the moment of conversion. And Christ is the only Savior, the only hope for sinners. There is only one place to receive righteousness, and that is Jesus Christ. So our response this morning, where do you stand with Jesus? Is Jesus Christ to you the very foundation upon which you build your life? Is he your confidence that in this life and the next you are going to be safe from the wrath of God, sheltered in the harbor of the righteousness of Christ? Is that your confidence in this life? Or are you playing the game of works? Listen, I, I, I'm doing my best to live this life. I'm trying to be a good person. I'm... I'm, I'm you know, I'm feeling better about myself than that guy should. And, and at the end of the day, I'm just going to stand for the Lord and, and hope it all works out because I'm a pretty good guy. I pray that you not stumble over Christ, but that you stand upon Him with everything that you are. Let's talk about George Bercompass. On Friday when we gathered in this room to say goodbye to a dear brother, a dear friend. Was our great comfort found in all the good things that George had done? Was the most reassuring comfort that George is with Christ face to face, was that rooted in that George was just an amazing guy? He was an amazing guy. But as I said on Friday, and as George agreed, as we talked about that day, George was a sinner who needed righteousness. And he was not righteous in and of himself. I'll tell you the greatest comfort for Gert, for the family, for all of us who grieved and had to say goodbye to George. It was not George's righteousness. It was the righteousness of Jesus Christ that George, with faith, embraced and bowed before. George is alive today not because of his own righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the comfort in this life and in the next, friends. See it as clear as day.
my hope is built on nothing less than these two things. The blood of Jesus Christ that atoned for my sins. And oh, how great a sinner I am. And His righteousness, His obedience. Every time I disobeyed, Jesus obeyed. And I have that by faith. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. What does that mean? What is it? We sing this all the time. What does it mean? It means that on my best day, I do not stand justified because of me. The most amazing presentation of any righteousness that I might think is impressive is not trustworthy. Don't put your trust there, friends. Holy trust in Jesus' name. It's His righteousness and His alone that saves. Let's pray. Oh God, we delight in the righteousness of our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. We thank You that the Gospel is un- just unbelievably simple. It's so incredibly simple, and yet we wouldn't see it apart from Your grace. We would have said foolishness. And so we owe all to You. We say thank You for opening our eyes, for changing our hearts, for turning us from our darkness and our wickedness and our willful chosen rebellion and depravity and showing us the glory of our Savior in His righteousness, the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Thank You for all that we see in Him. Jesus, thank You for all the days that You obeyed as You walked this earth. Thank You for every obedience that now is mine by faith. Thank You for being not just Savior, but Lord, Sovereign King, Ruler of me, and my portion forever. Oh God, we give just thanks and glory to You for the Gospel, the simplicity and the glory of the good news that sinners can be made righteous by faith in Jesus Christ alone. I pray, God, if there would be any here today who have yet to turn to Jesus and put faith in Him as Savior alone, that You would accomplish that now. Stir hearts, open eyes, cause the the scales to fall off and the beauty and glory of Christ to shine bright. Bring, Lord, many to salvation. Save, O God, as we know You can. In Jesus' name we pray.